Second Peter chapter one this morning. <coughs> I have a tickle in my throat. Second Peter chapter one. I'm going to go back and read the verses that we looked at last week. For those of you that are here um, that may have missed uh, the beginning of the this series, which was last week, um, you can find it online. You can scan the code there on the bulletin with your smartphone. It'll take you right to that. You can also subscribe to the podcast. You don't ever have to look for them again. They'll automatically be there. Um, you can listen to them online. Just don't listen to them during the service, please. I want you to do that at another time. Second Peter chapter 1, uh, he starts off by saying, Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained like precious faith with us by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, as His divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness, through the knowledge of Him who called us by glory and virtue, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. But also for this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, or goodness, and to virtue, knowledge, and to knowledge, self-control. To self-control, add perseverance, and to perseverance, godliness. To godliness, kindness, to godliness, add brotherly kindness. And to brotherly kindness, love. For if these things are yours and abound, you will neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's stop there. We spoke about last week um, looking at the ingredients um, that are necessary in order for us to receive or be partakers, I should say, of the divine nature. And I talked about, just a brief recap, I talked a little bit about that word divine nature, that concept, that divine means of God or supernatural, designated, originated from God. And nature speaks to our behavior, our makeup, our, our core person. Uh, our DNA, if you will, our spiritual DNA. And what he's talking about is that when he's speaking of being a partaker of the divine nature, he's saying that God has enabled us and provided everything that we need in order to have a nature, a makeup, a behavior that is not just like his, but it is of him. And in order to do that, we have to realize that this is not a list of things we do. And I think that's something important for us to realize. That these things that we're going to be looking at, the contents of the divine nature, this is not a list of things that we do. Do you remember me saying that we tend to look at the successes in our Christian life in terms of at-bats, 
If, you, if I can use the baseball analogy. We tend to think, well, man, I had a pretty good day today. I had two hits and only struck out three times. Or I went up to the plate, spiritually speaking, and I had, this was a good day as a Christian because I accomplished these things. And we look at the actions. And what I spoke of is that there's a difference between the way we look at success in the Christian life and how God does. We look at Christian success in in the sense of at-bats and balls and strikes and strikeouts. But God looks at, at, at the success in our Christian life over the span of seasons and careers. And the difference between the, the, why I want to talk about this divine nature is because this is not the emphasis, the, the emphasis is not on doing good. The emphasis is on being good. You see, we talk a lot about, act, we're action oriented from the pulpit. I talk to you about what is good and what is bad according to God's Word, and I encourage you to do good, and I hope that you do good, and I know that God is encouraging and equipping you to do good. But I'm not talking so much about the action of doing good, but rather the nature, the behavior that produces that good action. So it's not just saying you need to go out and do this. This isn't about things to do. This is a description of who. And if you want to write that down, this is going to follow us all throughout the series. This is not a list of things to do. This is a description of who. These things, are, these things accompany, these things are the description, the likeness, the stats, if you will, of the divine nature. He already described what it is, and now he's telling us what it looks like. We've look, we're going to look through the first four this morning. His promises are salvation. Knowledge of Him has enabled us to live this life to begin with. But I told you at the end of last week's message that it requires diligence in order to do it, a seriousness. Paying close attention to these things, that, that desiring to walk like God, to live like God, to be godly from the inside out requires diligence and effort. And with that diligence, he says, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue. Now, before we start talking about virtue, there's one he sneaks in. He says, add to your faith virtue. So as tempting as it is to want to go ahead and jump right into what virtue is, I have to really back up and say that he's talking about our faith first. And I want to reiterate again from last week how crucial that first one is. How crucial he, that he should mention faith first. The faith that he's speaking about is that saving faith in Jesus Christ. You can't be a partaker of the divine nature without having a personal saving relationship with Jesus Christ. It's impossible to be a possessor or a partaker of the nature of God if you have not come to know His only Son personally, Jesus Christ. He makes it clear in that first chapter that His divine power has provided for us all things pertaining to life and godliness through the knowledge, that saving knowledge of Jesus. Now here's the good thing. For those of you who know that you are a believer, 
who know that you have come to the feet of Christ at Calvary's hill and said, I am a hell-deserving sinner and I am in desperate need of your forgiveness, your pardon, God, through the finished work of your Son Jesus on the cross. When you know you have come to that place at some point in your life where by faith you have received the free gift of salvation through Christ, the good news is you have everything you need to be a partaker of the divine nature of God. You can shed this corrupt nature of our flesh. And you can begin that transformation into the likeness of God. We're not ever going to be God, but we're called to be like Him. The Scripture says, Be ye holy, God says, for I am holy. Faith. Saving faith enables it, but a diligent faith unleashes it. Saving faith enables you to have that divine nature. He's provided it all for you through your your salvation. But a diligent faith unleashes it. Let's look at virtue. There are some words that have changed down through time. Virtue seems to be one of those. Virtue, some of your Bibles may say goodness. If we're looking at the description of what a divine nature looks like, it's not just a person who is moved by faith in Jesus Christ and possesses salvation, but they're also a person who demonstrates moral excellence. This is a person who strives to live like God. This is a person, you know, if you think about it, we define it now and they defined it then as a moral excellence. But, you know, in in Peter's time, the Romans had a much different view of virtue. Well, not much different, but there was a slight difference between the Greek word that was used and the understanding of the Romans of the time of what virtue meant. And I want to fuse both of those together. I want to give you an idea, a well-rounded idea of what virtue really is. Because I think you can take both of those concepts, the, the Greek writing and also the Romans of the day, and be able to look at both sides of that word virtue and be able to pull from it a tremendous definition. We take on one hand the moral excellence, goodness. On the other hand, in the Roman idea of virtue, it was not just doing good, but it, 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 it fused with that courage, boldness, and an intensity to do what was right. So on one hand, on one view of virtue, you had doing good. On the other hand of virtue with the Romans, if you were virtuous, you were bold and courageous. Let's fuse these together. We get an idea that my divine nature, your divine nature, is to have at its core something like a courageous, bold integrity. A bold integrity. Now we know what integrity is. It's being the same person indoors and out. It's being right in here and out here. It's not being hypocritical. It's not being two-faced. It's being truly what you are in righteousness. That's what it is. To be true, honest, transparent, good. But that Roman idea, concept of virtue was bold, courageous. How does one... We know what it looks like. 
But how is that cultivated? Obviously, we know that we have everything that we need in order to have it because it says that that by His divine power, He has provided for us all things that pertain to life and godliness. So we know where the source comes from and we know um, what it looks like. It is a bold, courageous morality and a, a, a commitment to moral excellence. But how do we cultivate that? How do we cultivate that concept? Because it'd be, it would not just be enough for me to say, God gave it to you and here's what it looks like, so make it happen. How do we cultivate that nature? I think it has one major concept. And I believe that in order to really be good, to really be bold in your integrity, to really strive for moral excellence, I believe one of the greatest things that we have to be able to hold on to, to grab on to, to wrap our hearts around in our Christian life is an incredible, unwavering love of God. That simple. An unwavering love of God. You see... This is not talking so much about the action. I can tell you, 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 you already know how to do what is right. This isn't about the action so much as the intention. When I, as a believer, fall in love with God, when I am, am reading His Word and learning more about who He is, when I'm growing in a life of personal praise and worship and adoration, when I choose to do good, not just because it is good, but because He's good and He said it, when I can know that I can make decisions in my life that can reflect Him, and I am so absolutely in love with Jesus and it is unwavering, that is going to produce a goodness in my life. I can talk to you about being good, but it's not about the action, it's about the intention. Why am I doing it? Because I love God. He first loved me. He's given me the ability to do it through the power of the Holy Spirit that He's provided me for, but on that foundation, if I want to be good, if I want to strive for a moral excellence, if I want that bold, courageous integrity, I need to develop my love relationship with God. That's cultivating a goodness, a virtue. It's not just what I'm doing, but it's why I'm doing it. Look at the next one. Add to your virtue or your goodness knowledge. He uses knowledge a lot, doesn't he? There were heresies of the day that were speaking of secret knowledge. He was no doubt refuting the Gnostics of the time. He describes their heresies a little later in chapter 2. He describes their action. But what he's saying is our knowledge needs to be rooted and founded and growing and abounding in Christ. But this knowledge, as he uses in verse 4, or excuse me, verse 5, add to your virtue knowledge. It's a practical understanding of God's will. A practical understanding of God's will. You're able to discern right from wrong and practice that in your life. 
That's what it looks like. This is a person who in that divine nature does not just have a love of God that that is demonstrated through a life of goodness, but they're also people who are able to discern right from wrong and hopefully choose the right one. They spend time studying the Word. They spend time reading and meditating on what it says. They spend time looking to see how the Scriptures apply to their life. How they can flesh them out and and apply them to their certain scenarios of their life. Isn't it amazing? We live in a remarkable, a truly remarkable era. If you think about it, No doubt the internet has been a tremendous resource for knowledge. Now think about this for a minute. Because this is something that has not always been. Before when we relied on the printed page, you had to have a copy of the printed page and you had to have that copy be able to be delivered to someone so they could read it. So it, it, was, it was an amazing time when we moved from not just the written page, but to the digital format that can be cut and pasted and copied. It can be cataloged. It can be searched in a matter of milliseconds. We, almost all of us, have the internet, or we all have the capability to get online. You know, for those that don't even have, don't have any type of a library of resources, for those of you that may not have a physical paper Bible in your hand, you know, I look around this morning, I know some of you have them on your phones. Some of you have them on your, on your tablets. I know some of you, you can go to the internet right now, you can type in a verse and you can find some great, true resources for commentary on that verse. We are living in a day and an age where there is no shortage of the availability for biblical knowledge. We can go anywhere and get it. And I think it's so ironic that in this day and age of biblical knowledge, it seems like we may may not be growing to the capacity of what is out there. I know we all have Bibles, or almost all of us have Bibles. We all have the, the, these resources at our disposal. But the question is, we can, or the thought is, we can have all of these resources. We can have all, we can have email, internet, we can have all this technology, we can have all of a library full of books. But if we're not using it, what good is it? It is ironic that Peter speaks so much of knowledge. He mentions it multiple times in this first chapter, and yet, and yet often it is the, the least important thing in our Christian walk. We're, we often look over knowledge. We'll bring our Bibles to church and, 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 and we'll, we'll open them there, but then we may set them down and not really give any thought to personal reading or personal devotion throughout the week. We may not give much thought to a Wednesday night Bible study or a small group that your friend is having or listening to a sermon online or, or what have you. All the options that we have today to be able to fill our minds with the truth of the Word of God. And what Peter is saying 
is that divine nature does not just have a faith that is built upon. It is not just one that is marked by virtue, a moral excellence, a bold, courageous integrity, but it is also a life that has grabbed a hold of knowledge. It is able to process the Word of God. It is able to discern right from wrong. It knows what God's will is in this particular matter and that. It is able to look at a situation and compare God's Word to their scenario and work it out that way. That's what the divine nature is. A morally good life that is founded on Christ and faith in Him and a knowledgeable life based on the Word of God and the nature of Jesus Christ. Look at this third one. Or the fourth one, excuse me. Sorry, James. Fourth one, self-control. Now wait a second. We don't like that one. If you don't mind, I'm just going to go ahead and skip to the end of the sermon now. And <laughs> Some of your Bibles say temperance. Guys, let me tell you something about self-control. This one's a big one. I say it's a big one because, remember this, if you don't have self-control, self-control gives evidence that you have all the previous ones. Self-control. When you are practicing Self-control. When you are able to make your body serve you and you not to serve it. When you are able to overcome your appetites, especially in regards to sexual lust in this sense. But when you are able to turn to your body and say, I control you. I am not going to allow the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes. I am not going to allow sin to reign in my mortal body. And you are able to dominate your will, the will and impose your will over your body, your appetites, your desire for sin. When you are able to do that, it demonstrates that you've got the first two. It demonstrates that you have godliness. It demonstrates that you have knowledge. Why? Because you know what is right and wrong. Self-control is the evidence of goodness and knowledge. It is the ultimate outcome. It is the, desire, it is the understood outcome of those two things. So this morning, when you're looking at your life, and you're saying, alright, if this is the description of the divine nature, if this is what it looks like, and this is not a list of things that we do, but rather a description of who we are or who we are to be, we ought to be able to ask ourselves, is there demonstration, is there evidence in my life of goodness? Is there evidence of, in my life of a moral excellence that I am striving to do what is right? I am striving to look like God based off of a growing and abounding love of God. We ought to be able to go to knowledge. And say, am I, am I devouring the Word? Am I taking and, and, and chewing on and meditating and processing the Word and using the Word as a worldview and a decision-making tool for my life? Am I making right decisions based off of God's Word? Or am I making wrong decisions based off of God's Word? And we ought to be able to look at our life and say this. Am I bound up 
Am I a slave? Am I a prisoner to sin? Is there some sin that I can't kick? Is there some type of spiritual bondage that I am wrapped up in that I cannot get out from under? Is there some sin that has continued to plague me that whenever it comes up, boom, I'm yielding to it. I'm doing it. Maybe it is jealousy. Maybe it is anger. Maybe it is lust. Maybe it is a love of money. Maybe it is pride. I have no idea what it is. But every time it comes up, you, for whatever reason, cannot tell it no. If that's the case, you're not practicing self-control. If you're not practicing self-control, is it because you don't know? No, not if you're recognizing the struggle. You know. Is it because God hasn't given you everything you need to overcome that? No, it's because you're yielding to the temptation. You know what's amazing? Is that we can still not practice self-control even with the knowledge that right and wrong. We can know it's right. I can know it's wrong. And I can choose to walk in that. We looked at Wednesday night in Psalm 32 where David spoke about sin. He understood what sin was. He used three words. He used transgression, sin, and iniquity. The first word he used was transgression. It means a literal, deliberate stepping over the line. It means you know what is right, a clear understanding of God's will, and yet you still, in light of God's, in light of God's word, in the knowledge of God's word of what is right and wrong, we deliberately step over the line. We have that ability to step over the line even though we know it is wrong. That's a transgression when it's deliberate. It's iniquity when it's wicked and incredibly crooked and perverse. We have that nature within us. And what God's Word is saying is the divine nature is one that is of goodness. It is one that is full of knowledge. A growing and abounding knowledge. It is one that has at its core a control over life. You are not carried off by every lust and every sin that comes its way. You are able to look at temptation and say no. You are able to literally turn your back on that sin. And that's the divine nature. It's half of it. Goodness. Virtue. Knowledge. And self-control. If you are here this morning and you know you know you are bound up you are sitting in that prison you have been unable to say no to whatever that sin is or you've been unwilling to say no that does not mean that you are not saved let me remind you of that that does not mean that you are not saved what it does mean is that you are struggling with sin i'm always encouraged when i hear people are struggling with sin that means that they realize it's wrong, they realize there's a battle, and they're admitting that they've been losing the battle. What scares me is when people have lost the idea. They're no longer struggling with sin. They're no longer fighting and battling against it. They've pretty much given up and allowed it to be a roommate. And I don't know where you are, but the good news is this. 
goodness, knowledge, self-control. Remember what it said? God, by His divine power, has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. If you are a Christian, we can have this type of life. We can have a good, knowledgeable, virtuous, self-controlled life. If you were to mark in your Bibles chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, Peter describes the peril, the peril of those false teachers who were not practicing godliness or goodness, who the way of truth was evil spoken of, who had given themselves over to lewd and lascivious sins, corruption. He refers to them as having a swift judgment coming upon them. We have chosen judgment, Strict, swift discipline or a life of righteousness, blessing, and godliness. I pray this morning for those struggling, we would find our strength and our power in God. That we would cultivate this attitude. One that starts with love of God. That if you are struggling in sin and self-control is an issue right now in your heart, that you may say, God, you know my struggles. You know what I'm battling with. You know what I have been bound up with. But God, you still set the prisoner free. Give me your power, your ability to say no. To live a life of integrity and self-control, not carried away by sin, but carried away by your Spirit. Do you know Jesus this morning? These things don't matter much to you right now you've never started off right with your first decision to be a saving relationship with Christ.